What's up and welcome to the best podcast for coaches, The Coaches Collective. I'm Derek Perkins. I'm here with Dan Casey and Chris Maleo. Each week, we give you access to some of the most innovative coaches and leaders in and out of sports. When it comes to innovative minds, this week is no different. We catch up with the father of the air raid, Coach Hal Mummy. Coach was actually on the road during this conversation, so bear with us if the audio isn't quite as clear as normal. If you're enjoying the content, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and give us a follow on Twitter, at Coach Collect. As always, get your pen and paper ready for another episode of the Coach's Collective. All right, guys, welcome to another week of the Coaches Collective. This week, we've got the honor of catching up with the father of the air raid, Coach Hal Mummy. Um, Coach Mummy, how are we doing today, man? Oh, it's going good, Derek. I appreciate it. Thank you for the, for the mention there. Definitely. Hey, well, I've got to start the show off with a quick story because it's one that uh, it, 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 hurts, it hurts me to think about to this day. So back in 2012, um, my senior year at Southern Nazarene University, we were in NAI school had just trans transitioned to division two. So not very good, really struggled that year, but um, met you guys in, in Abilene when uh, I believe it was your last year at McMurray um, close game um, kind of battled back and forth the whole game. We're fourth quarter, about 50 seconds to go. We're get the ball in the 40 drive down the field. Um, and at that point it's, it's, 22 to 19. So drive down the field. We have a big 40 yard completion. Um, you guys call a timeout at that point. We're now on, um, like the eight or nine yard line. You guys call a timeout. Our coach, um, I, I won't, I won't mention his name. Um, cause I know this story hurts him and him too, but, um, so he decides he wants to go for the win. So, uh, we go come out of timeout, two incompletions back to back, complete one at that point it's it's we're on the three yard line um and it's fourth and three fourth and three time's about to expire yeah yeah down three coach starts screaming spike it spike it spike it i'm the running back and i'm like looking at my quarterback dylan terry um and i'm like it's it's no don't we can't spike it we can't spike it He, he spikes it fourth and goal on the three Clock expires. Game over. Um, it, it was it was a it was a rough one. So that that one that one haunts me to this day. But um, <laughs> well, that's one of those deals. We dodged a bullet right there. You guys played really well that night. We had a really good team that year. No, oh, yeah, uh, ended up with beating Southern Arkansas in the uh, Heart of Texas Bowl. But y'all y'all played your hearts out and uh, probably should have won the game. But. We dodged a bullet for sure. You know, the way he spiked the ball, we, we thought until after the game, when we talked to some people, that some of y'all, that, that he had just fumbled the snap. Uh, but well, I wish. It's uh, <laughs> either way. Either way, we dodged the bullet. So yeah. Sometimes you dodge them, sometimes you catch them. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, to kick it off here, I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's a good segue because – you've been a guy that's been at a number of places and we always really enjoy hearing about um, just coaches journeys over the course of their career. Um, and it's a profession where you've almost got to have a suitcase ready at all times. So um, 
Talk us through um, kind of your your start to coaching, uh, when you knew you wanted to coach, and, and what all that looked like. I kind of uh, knew what I wanted to do from a long from from an early age, and I think that kind of helped me as I played in college. It was kind of a laboratory for me every time I went out there, even in practice. I'd watch our coaches and see what they did, you know, what they did good and what they didn't do so good and, and try to learn from it. And then after graduating at Tarleton State in 1975, I, I took a job at Moody High School in Corpus Christi, Texas as the, uh, the uh, quarterback and receiver coach. And I stayed there three years and we, we, we improved them a lot. Uh, they were a team that was not very good when I first went there. We ended up playing pretty well for three years. And then after, uh, after three seasons, I got a chance to be a head coach at Aransas Pass, Texas. If you've ever been to the Gulf Coast of Texas, Aransas Pass is where you get on a ferry to go to the beach. And I took over that program for one year. And then I got a break, and, and uh, Bill Young was the head coach at West Texas State. It's now West Texas A&M. And they were a D1 program in those days. And, and he, he offered me a chance to uh, be the quarterback and receiver coach there, mainly because I was the only guy he could find that was dumb enough to work for $5,000 a year. <laughs> and so but getting into college coaching, you know, that was something I wanted to do. It had always been a goal. And, and uh, moved my family 900 miles north of, to the panhandle of Texas. We, uh, we had some great guys on the staff there. We had some great players. Uh, in my second ball game there, we, we went over to Stillwater, Oklahoma, and played a money game against Oklahoma State and, and upset Jimmy Johnson and his whole crew. And, uh, they had a really great team. And we ended up beating them 20 to 19 in Stillwater. And, and Coach Johnson was always real gracious to to uh, to our staff and to me personally. After that, he was every time he'd see us, he'd, he'd brag about that that win uh, or our win over him, and he was very gracious about that. I learned a lot watching that as I went through seeing him out recruiting and stuff. You know, it's always it's always good to, to be humble and, and try to you know promote other people, not just yourself. Um, we, we did that for two years in West Texas, and then uh, Coach Young got the job at UTEP, which was probably the worst job Division One at the time. And when we went down there, he called me in. He said, look, I want you to go with me. I'll make you the offensive coordinator. Because our offensive coordinator at West Texas got the head job at West Texas. And uh, we went down there, and I was the youngest offensive coordinator in the in, uh, Division one at the time. We, we were there four years. We had gone there with the idea that we would play like we did at West Texas, where we ran the ball, we ran the eye formation, uh, ran a little bit of option, did some rollout passes and things like that. Uh, you know, play good defense, have good special teams, but we really just didn't have the personnel for that. And the, the year that we left West Texas State, or the year before we left West Texas State, I had come home from recruiting. I'd gone in the living room and turned on the TV and watched the Holiday Bowl was on. 
and BYU was playing SMU, and SMU had the great team they had with the Pony Express with Eric Dickerson, Craig James, and uh, BYU was down by 20. I believe it was 20 points with two and a half minutes to play, and they, they came back, and, and McMahon threw a touchdown pass on the, about the last play of the game. They uh, upset SMU. And I'd watch that game, and I, I went in the office the next day, and I, I told everybody, I said, I don't know what that guy in Provo, Utah is doing, but I'm going to find out because it looks pretty exciting. And so then when we went to UTEP, it just happened that we followed BYU through the, through the schedule. You guys are too young to remember this, but in the old days, you used to have 16-millimeter film, and you had to cut it up and uh, splice it together all sorts of things in order to do what we do now with uh, it digitally. But we, they would send out three game films 10 days before you played the, 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 the next opponent. So we would get the film on like Thursday, and then we would play that team we were playing, you know, the following Saturday. Well, as, as fate would have it, through the conference schedule, we were always within three games of that team playing BYU. So I always had the film and I started cutting it up and became very fascinated with it. Talk coach young into let me put in a little bit of it and playing with it. The last year we were at UTEP BYU had played the first game of the year against Boston college in Boston and they had upset them and they upset them by doing what we now know today is back shoulder throws when Boston College would press them or, or they could get on top of the corner, they would underthrow the ball and and the BYU receivers would uh, come back and catch it. They had several huge plays doing that. Um, so we, I watched that and I and looking at it, I was going, you know, Robbie Bosco's a pretty good quarterback. I, he's he, either his arms hurt or he's having a really bad day or they're doing this on purpose. Mm-hmm. So, the next week, I had a quarterback named Sammy Garza who works for the Cowboys now. He played about 10 years in the professional football, but he, he was really a good passer. And and uh, I had two wide receivers that, that were pretty good, Eric Anderson and Larry Lenny. And I took him out there, and I got him in my office, and I said, well, look, we're going to work on this every day in one-on-one, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell Coach Young, don't tell anybody. We're just going to do this. And but we're not going to do it yet. I'll tell you when we're going to do it. So we worked on it for about six weeks of the season. And every day in one-on-one, we would under, Sammy would purposely underthrow a vertical ball to the wide receivers, and they would come back and catch it. And every time we did it, the DBs always just thought Sammy had made a bad throw, you know, and, and the receivers made a remarkable play. Well, we get to play BYU, and – that turned out to be three of the huge plays in the game as we upset them in El Paso. And and that was the year after they had won the national championship. So they were still, they were, I think they were number one in one poll and they were number three in another poll. And, and so upsetting them was a huge thing. At the end of that season, we all got fired and we were all had to split up and find other jobs. I had decided to try and get a high school job in Texas because I wanted to do what I had seen BYU do. And I wanted to be able to call all the shots because this is 1986. There wasn't a lot of people signing up to have big line splits and throw the balls 
throw the ball 50 times a game. So I, I, uh, I was at the national convention and one of the BYU coaches came up to me and said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I think I'm going to take one of these small head jobs that I'm chasing. And, and he said, well, Mike Holmgren just left our staff. Why don't you come up and interview for that job? But now I was flattered that they would want me to do that. But, you know, I just didn't think it would be a good – I had three little kids at the time. And I like bourbon and cigars, and I'm pretty sure Mormons don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided – I told them I think it would be better if I just take this job in Texas at a high school. And, and uh, I said, well, I'll, if you guys want to come recruit, I'll help you. I'll, I'll spot some players for you. So uh, we got to be friends. They invited me to come up. and You know, it was pretty much a, they, they didn't invite a lot of people to come up there. And, and what he told me was that Coach Edwards was really impressed because he said, we, we've lost a few games before. You know, you got to remember, they were a really incredible program at this point. They turned out all those quarterbacks in a row. Jim McMahon, Steve Young, you know, just probably six or eight All-Americans. He said, we've never lost a game to a team we should beat that beat us doing what we do. (laughs) He said, so you're always welcome. So that began this this mentorship with Lavelle Edwards and his his a lot of his staff. And I would go from Coppers Cove, Texas to Provo, Utah in the spring and go up there and sit in their film room hour after hour watching every game that, that Coach Edwards ever coached on offense. And then I'd go watch them in practice. And then I'd take it back to the high school and I'd put it in and play around with it, experiment with it. And then in the summer, I'd take my son, Matthew, who now is the offensive coordinator at Nevada. But in those days, he was a, a junior high kid learning to play the game so i'd take him up there to their camp in, in july and, and uh do do the whole process again and pick their brains and ask them, you know what am i doing wrong on this how to do how do i do this and how do i do that so that's why the the original thought for air raid most of it came from byu and and uh i've always you know tried to give coach edwards credit for that because he i thought he, he was way ahead of his time and he, he didn't get a lot of no he didn't get a lot of notoriety for what he actually did because in the seventies and eighties, when he was doing it, there just weren't a lot of people that wanted to do that. And, and uh, so anyway, I always try to give him credit and he ended up being a great mentor to me. It it got so after a while, I did it for, I think uh, eight or nine years in a row. After a while, coach Edwards, secretary, Cheryl would just hand me the keys to the office and say, lock up make sure you lock up when you leave tonight because I had sit in their film room till like 10 o'clock at night watching cut-ups. And it, it, the thing that I think young coaches can learn from this is, the, you know, you can go to a lot of clinics and listen to a lot of people and a lot of different ideas. But the thing that was good for me in my career is that I only did one thing, basically. And, and when you do that, you go there one year and you see, uh, like take Nash, that was their one of their number one plays. And it's where we developed it from. And, and you know, they might run that all year long and only see man coverage. And then the next year you go and they, they, you see it, and they only see a certain type of zone coverage. And because defenses change and defenses evolve. And so you got to be ready for that. So uh, 
being able to go back to the same place and have the same point of reference as a starting point is, is really helpful. So that's what I did. And then, uh, you know, we went from Copper's Cove. We, we were there three years and won a bunch of games that they weren't used to winning. We had, I think we, when I went there, they had won six games, in, 10 games in six years. And when I left there, we'd won 13 games in three years. So they, we improved them quite a bit. There was three of their programs that, that they had been playing for about 20 years and they'd never beaten. Uh, one of them was Westlake High School where Drew Brees and Nick Foles came from. Um, we, we won we won games we weren't supposed to win, and the players had fun playing the game. And that was in the mid '80s. That was something that they weren't doing a lot. And so then I got a chance to go to Iowa Wesleyan and be the head coach. They were they were really bad, and they were uh, they had two returning players. It was an AI program, and we went there and built it, and. Ended up going to two bowl games, and then the, the only time that school's been to the playoffs in the school history. Uh, that's where I hired Mike Leach, and Mike became first the old line coach, and then eventually I promoted, gave him a title, and made him offensive coordinator. And then we went to Valdosta State for five years, and then Kentucky. And, uh, you know, Kentucky, we beat Alabama. We beat LSU back-to-back -back years. Went to the went to back-to-back -back bowls. Uh, went to the first New Year's Day Bowl they'd been to since Bear Bryant was the coach there. Uh, I, we, when we beat Alabama, they hadn't beat them in 75 years, so that was a long dry spell we ended. So we, we had some good things. I had Tim Couch, who was the number one player picked in the draft as a junior. We also had Dusty Bonner and Jared Lorenzen. Lorenzen ended up playing, uh, playing for the Giants and getting a Super Bowl ring. And then I got in trouble with the NCAA there. So we had to sit out for a year. We had to go to NCAA jail for a year. And uh, actually it was just, it wasn't really jail because they didn't really find me guilty or anything, but they, right. it took 18 months to straighten it all out. Right. So I wanted to do something to get back to the game. And so they were starting a program in Southeast Louisiana, an FCS program. And the president there was kind of friends with a, another friend of mine and, and uh, talked to him and liked him. And so we went down there for three years and started that program, got them going. The last year I was there, we, we upset McNeese State at their place, beat them 52 to 17 on R.C. Slocum night on uh, regional TV. And the, the guys at New Mexico State saw it. So then they came after us and we went out there, did that for, for four years, didn't have as much success there. Uh, had great offenses, but couldn't find – there's just not enough players out there to have great defenses. Right. And uh, we were in a, what is now the Mountain West, but in those days they called it the WAC, and it, it's a, it was a great league. June Jones was at Hawaii, and, and uh, you know, Boise State was coming into prominence. And so we, we had a tough schedule. Uh, but we had a great quarterback named Chase Holbrook, and he set all kinds of records. He's now the offensive coordinator out there. Um, but after we got fired there, I got a call from McMurray University, the AD, and he said, uh, you probably don't want this job because it's the worst job in America. And I said, no, I just left the worst job in America. But you can be tied for worst, but you can't be worst. And he started laughing. 
and and he goes, well, we're going to do one. We're going to hire somebody like you, or we're going to drop football. Wow. We haven't won a game in two years, and things are really bad around here. Our stadium's about to be condemned, and uh, you know we're just it's, it's, everybody's just down on the sport. And you know it's in Abilene's a town with three football programs. There's Harden Simmons, there's Abilene Christian, and then there's McMurray. McMurray was always kind of third on that list. Well, I said, well, I, I've never done D3 before, so I have to learn the ropes. I said, but I know how you guys are. Y'all fire the head coach every four or five years, and you keep all the assistants that got him fired because you play poker with them on Thursday nights or something. <laughs> and he started laughing again. And uh, he thought for a minute, he's Ron Holmes, he's a great guy. He said, uh, you know, I don't really like any of those bastards back there. You can fire all of them if you want to. <laughs> and I said, well, I'd say I got six coaches that are out of work. Including one of them is my son. And and uh, so he said, well, how much do we have to pay them? And so I said, well, we're at New Mexico State. They're not making that much out here. And I told him what they were making. He said, yeah, we probably can afford that. So one thing led to another, and I showed up at D3 McMurray, a team that had not won a game in two seasons and had never beaten crosstown rival Harden Simmons um, in 26 tries. So we went there. We, I got incredibly lucky uh, in that Jake. You remember Jake Mullen, mm-hmm. Derek, the quarterback oh, yeah. we had, yeah, he was, he was great a player. Yep. Well, when I got to McMurray, I'm out there, and these guys are running around in, in cut-off pants and T-shirts. <laughs> you know, spring practice at D3 is just kind of – Right, no, no pads. Know, it's, it's almost like watching frisbee football. <laughs> so the uh, that's pretty much what these guys have turned it into. So I'm sitting out there and I look at one and I'm watching the quarterbacks throw, and I'm to say the least, I'm not impressed. <laughs> so I looked at one of the receivers and I said, "Isn't there anybody on in this program that can throw a ball?" <laughs> he looks at me, he goes, "Coach, the best quarterback on our campus plays intramural football." I said, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, no, nope, I played with him in high school. He's, he could have been a great quarterback, but he's just playing baseball here. I said, well, tell him to come talk to me. So, Jake, a couple weeks later, Jake walks in my door. There's this big 6'3", 220-pound guy that I'd gone to see him play baseball. He was a great athlete. I mean, you know, he's nailing people at home plate from left field and stuff. And uh, he looks at me and he, he goes, I'd, I'd like to – try and play football. I said, well, that's a good idea because I'd like to try and have a quarterback. <laughs> and so he went on to play four years for us. You caught him at the end of his career there. And he, y'all actually, Southern Naz did a great job defending us that night. We didn't we didn't run it up on him. Anyway, left there, went to SMU to be offense coordinator for Jude Jones for a year. And then I took the job at Bellhaven in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and moved over there for five years and, and – uh, Bellhaven wasn't, we weren't as successful there. Uh, they just weren't as committed to getting people into D3 football as they were at McMurray. But learned a lot of lessons there. Built them a stadium just like I'd done at McMurray for them. So we did a lot of things. So, uh, then I kind of bounced uh, into pro football and, you know, was doing the XFL when the virus hit. So that is about. 40 years worth of traveling right there. And you're right. You got to be ready to pack. 
if you want to coach in college, you got to be ready to pack up. No doubt. No doubt. No, well, coach, I mean, unbelievable story. I actually, it was probably two years ago, uh, ended up reading Sam Gwynn's book, The Perfect Pass. And, um, you know, a lot of what you just mentioned was was very familiar. Um, and I think a lot of coaches can relate to uh, to your story. Sam, Sam's an interesting fellow. He, he usually just writes history, usually Civil War history. And he's got some great books out. Uh, Empire of the Summer Moon, Rebel Yell, uh, Hymns of the Republic. I've read all of them. I was totally flattered when he said he wanted to write our story. He, he, he told me, he said, there's, there's two things you need to know. I said, what's that? He goes, well, first, you don't have any control over the story because I'm a historian. I'm just going to write what happened. Yeah. I said, well, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I said, what's the other thing? He goes, the other thing is I don't know a damn thing about football. <laughs> Sam studied and and watched film from Copper's Cove and Iowa Wesleyan and Valdosta State. And he it took he, he interviewed about a hundred people over about a two year period and to write that book. It came out, it's a great book and, and uh, I'm very flattered to, you know, I've been part of it. No but I, I'll swear at the end of that when the book came out, I told Sam, I said, I think you could be an offensive coordinator now as long as they <laughs> run the air raid. I mean, so he, he learned a lot. He seemed to have he, he seemed a, to have gotten a good grasp of it for sure. And, you know, obviously yeah, he did a great job describing things. Yeah. Obviously, hearing hearing your story and, and reading a little bit about that. You know, one of the themes that, that certainly comes up that you that you hit on earlier was your relationship with Lavelle Edwards and BYU and kind of how it started off you watching film and turned into a relationship, you going up to Provo and visiting and, and different things like that. And, you know, one of the things that I think all of us can agree on is, is one of the things that we admire about you is that you've kind of always done things your way. Um, and obviously I think some coaches see air raid as, you know, a, a collection of plays, whether it's mesh or Y cross or different things like that. But um, you know, more than anything, the air raids, a, it's a philosophy, it's an identity, it's a way of life. And, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how um, it's not just the plays you run or, you know, pa- being a pass first offense, but really having a whole identity and even a way you practice and different things like that? Like, what is it that makes the air raid distinctive? Well, I think now it's become pretty prevalent and a lot of people are doing it. But in the 80s, when we started it, it what we were doing was was pretty much thought of as heresy. <laughs> we, were, we were called all kinds of names. We were communists, we were, you know, <laughs> crazy people. You know, we didn't hit a lot in practice. We practiced mostly in shorts and shoulder pads. Uh, we had short workouts and we didn't run sprints at the end of them. Uh, we didn't have a stretch, a, an organized stretching period at the beginning of practice. I didn't want to waste time doing that. And uh, so we, we had a lot of ideas that I had gathered through the years, not just from LaBelle, but from other great coaches um, uh, that I'd seen when I was out recruiting, uh, you know, the various colleges in early in my career. So I tried to compile all that into, into a, a year-round system, a year-round program that would go from, you know, off-season to spring practice to summer workouts to fall camp and two a days and uh and then into and then have the season be planned out i got a lot of help from bill walsh on planning i thought he, he was really brilliant we, we did some of his stuff but mostly what i got from bill was how to how to game plan and how to practice plan um 
June Jones and Mouse Davis were helpful. You got a few things in the air raid that are kind of based on run and shoot ideas. Um, so I just tried to take these things and put them together. And then, like I was talking about before, with going to see Lavelle so many times, you know, you learn you learn lessons and you learn what to do and what not to do if you if you don't change your whole philosophy every year. A lot of coaches go to clinics. You know, one year they fall in love with a triple option. The next year they want to be air raid. The next year they want to be West Coast. So they never master anything. And they never give their players a chance to master anything. And so, you know, what has become known now is air raid offense. where We, we, we have big line splits. We throw the ball 50 or 60 times a game. Uh, we have a limited amount of run plays, but we know when to call them and try to, you know, try to have a thousand yard rusher as our, as our back um, play. And then playing fast, all that came together between 1986 and 1991. And, uh, our last year at Iowa Wesleyan was the, the first time we really had what most people now think of as air raid, what Sam Gwynn saw as air raid, you know, yeah did all that stuff I just described. Mostly Leach and I came up with that because we were just out of sheer desperation. We had gotten so good so fast at Wesley that none of those little liberal arts colleges would play us anymore. So we look up, we're playing Portland State, and, you know, Northeast Missouri and Wayne State, and all these big schools. We got, we got 700 kids in school and we're playing all these places that have 7,000 or 8,000, 10,000. So, the, the playing fast was added to the what we were doing already on offense, and, the, and that that really we got that from Don Matthews, who was a great coach in Canada. But in 1991, he ha- actually happened to be coaching kind of like an XFL type team in Orlando, Florida. Watch our bandit drill at the end of practice. I said, "What is that?" He goes, "That's where we practice two minute offense." Now, I'd seen two-minute offenses done before at a lot of pro camps and other colleges and stuff, but I'd never seen it done so well organized and and so well laid out and so fast. And I was just totally impressed with it. I remember standing on the sidelines there watching, I told Mike, I said, that's what we were looking for right there. That's our edge. He goes, what's that? And I said, we're going to play like this, but we're not going to do it for two-minute offense. We'll do it all the time. And so we took it back, put it in at Wesleyan, and then proceeded to win 10 games with it. And uh, so that, you know, through the years, going cutting against the grain was was always something I enjoyed doing. We would take great delight in the fact that, that people would be afraid to play us just by simply the, the style of play. And... We took a lot of pride in, in the fact that we occasionally upset people or played played above our level and sometimes two two play two two levels above us and, and would upset people that we weren't supposed to upset. Uh, they they uh, the first probably twenty years of doing this, you know, you'd go to those conference meetings and. and and we were always the black sheep in the room. <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to be around us because they they were mad at the way we played the game. Uh, I remember there's one pretty famous 
I'm not going to say who it was, but he's pretty famous and he's won national championships and stuff. But he, he came up to me at the convention one time and uh, he looks at me and he goes, I know what you're doing. So what's that, coach? He goes, you're, you're, I'm telling you, you're destroying the game. You don't knock anybody down anymore. <laughs> and I said, well, you've always been kind of one of my heroes, but we like what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it was fun to do. And uh, I'm, I'm happy that a lot of people have copied us. You know? Totally. I think it's made the game more enjoyable for players. And it's, it's kept them involved in the game, particularly the younger guys in high school. Uh, they, they, they like football. In, in 1986, when I started doing this, the four best athletes at Conference Cove High School didn't play football. And, and I called him in and I said, well, how come y'all don't play football? He said, we don't play football because it's no fun. Well, it wasn't fun because the, what they were doing there previous to us was having inside drill for about three hours out there, <laughs> killing everybody. So we started practicing. I could go to mama's and daddy's and tell them, look, if your son gets hurt playing football, it won't be in practice. It'll be, it may be in a game, but it's not going to be in practice. Yeah. Because of the way we practice. And, and nowadays, this is the way most people do practice. Coach, you, you know, you, you talked a little bit about how, you know, you've made the game more fun for players, but you've also changed the trajectory of a lot of coaching careers as well. You know, and you talk, you touched upon a little bit of your relationship with Coach Leach, but that relationship and you taking a chance on him has now led to, you know, the coaching careers of Cliff Kingsbury, Lincoln Riley, um, you know, Wes Welker, who's part of your coaching tree, Neil Brown, Sonny Cumbie, Art Bryles. I mean, there's a lot of guys, you know, we can keep going on and on and on. Um Talk to us a little bit about your relationship with Coach Leach. I mean, obviously, he started from an incredibly unconventional place, um, and now you know, that that relationship yeah. has now spawned, you know, a lot of, of things that have changed, you know, coaching and and in scheme along the way. So, I, I had exactly two resumes of people that wanted to come to Iowa Wesleyan, and one of them was Mike Leach, and it, he had been he had gone to school at BYU, and he had heard that I was you know, our offense was similar to theirs and he wanted to be involved in that because he admired, uh, he had always admired him and, and, uh, he didn't play football there, but he was there when Jim McMahon and Steve Young and those guys were there and he had got a law degree from Pepperdine. So after a couple of failures, I figured that I just need to find somebody who's really smart and teach him what I want him to do. And so that somebody turned out to be Mike Leach and that started a 10 year collaboration that really added a lot. Mike Mike basically did all the O-line stuff for the air raid, and, and I developed all the, the quarterback and receiver stuff. But his his drills and his fundamentals, everything you see guys like Bill Beatenbaugh and Matt Moore, people like that doing now in the O-line, that Mike developed all that. And and because it, it truly had to be developed because there wasn't anybody playing like us, not very much. It, it was a really small club, I'll put it that way, you know. Jim Jones, John Jenkins, Lavelle Edwards, or what a lot of people doing what we did. And so that that started the relationship, and it's still a, a, we're great friends, and he's, he's my best friend in the game. That's cool. Coach, talk us through, uh, and, and we've heard the story, but you know, I think it's a great one. Dude. August 31st, 1991, the, the birth of the Array. <laughs> well, we took, we went back to Wesleyan. 
that spring, and we had a great quarterback named Dustin Thewall. He builds homes in Central Texas now. If you need a luxury home bill, you should call him. But he, uh, he's he was a great quarterback, and and the first air raid quarterback. He ended up throwing for uh, almost twelve thousand yards, one hundred twenty-one touchdown passes, and got us to the postseason three times at, at a school that wasn't used to winning more than two or three games a year. Um, He's still in the NAI record books, a lot of places where he holds records. But but Dustin had a real knack for he had a great release, he had great feet. If I had to compare him to somebody that everybody's seen, I would say he was a lot like Joe Montana because he he wasn't necessarily a big physical guy, but he had great feet and great vision and a great release. And so we take this idea of speeding our offense up back to Wesleyan and we do it for the whole spring and at the end of the spring I called Dustin and I said how do you like it and he goes everybody hates it I said well that wasn't what I wanted to hear I said we got a really tough schedule we got to do something different and without changing the offense and he said well it's just too wordy and there's too much on it. It's too big a menu. So I said, all right, do, do me a favor. Let me, let me spend all summer and I'll pare the menu down so you don't have to make as many decisions. And then uh, give me one week during, during fall camp. If you hate it, if everybody still hates it after one week, then we'll drop it. So we came back, we pared it down, just giving him a small menu of about four or five plays. And, and, did that during fall camp the first week. And at the end of the first week, I called him in. I said, what do you think? Do you still want to drop it? And he goes, oh, no, everybody loves it now. And so basically what we had narrowed it down to was what we call six, which is four verticals. And mesh was the fail-safe play. And then uh, Y-cross and stick and then the drop lane. And so we gave those, I would call a formation and tell Dustin, you, you pick the play you want out of those five. If you don't like it or you're not sure, always call mesh. And uh, if you don't have anything, then look at me and hold your hand up. I'll just give you a play, you know. So that's how we implemented it to begin with. And that way he could go extremely fast because Dustin was very bright and he could see a lot because he had such great peripheral vision. Well, we have to play Northeast Missouri, the first game of the season. And the reason we have to play them is because they're ranked 10th in the nation in D2. They're 90 miles from us in Kirksville, Missouri. And they couldn't find anybody to play because they were too good. And we couldn't find anybody to play because we were too good. So we end up playing up a level against uh, a very fine Northeast Missouri team to open the season. Well, Coach Coach Eric Holmes was there, and he, he had called me and said, look, you can't find a game. I can't find a game. Why don't we play? I said, I'll do it. I said, but I need a home game. Will you come to me? And he goes, yeah, we'll do that. So they show up there, and they, I mean, compared to our team, they look like the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> they they're big and strong and got fancy new uniforms. We look like a Sandlot team. And 
got raggedy old uniforms. The first half doesn't go very well, and we're down 24 to 7 at halftime. And, but we had taken the opening drive and gone right down and scored. Then we had just made some boneheaded plays. We got a punt blocked some stuff like that. And I'm walking into halftime, and I'm kind of thinking, what am I going to say to them? Because I'm kind of envisioning 48 to 14 here. And T-Wall comes up to me, and he says, you don't have to say anything to them. We're going to win this game. And I was kind of looking around, cutting my eyes out. I was thinking, are you watching the same game I'm watching? Because we're down 24 at 7. And uh, then our big left tackle comes up, puts his arm on my shoulder, and says, Coach, we're going to win this game. Now, now, Sean Martin hadn't said a complete sentence to me in three years. So for him to come up and have that much confidence really kind of struck me. So I walked in the locker room, and I didn't say anything to him because I looked around, and they were all acting like we were winning the game. And it dawned on me that that what they knew was that, that Northeast Missouri was already around. Their defense wasn't going to be able to, there wasn't going to be a pass rush. They weren't used to this fast of play, and that we were going to be able to score on. If we just didn't make the mistakes we made in the first half, we we could win. And we came back and beat them thirty-four to thirty-one, and, and uh, still probably one of the, the best victories ever in that little school's history. Uh, and and really, that was what everybody knows is air raid nowadays. That that was the first time. Well, coach, it's been it's been really interesting hearing, you know, obviously the evolution of the air raid where, you know, it didn't necessarily come to you prepackaged. It was this, you know, series of innovations and going and visiting people and taking ideas from here and paring down. I mean, it's I think most coaches can resonate with as they're designing um, a system that works for their program, you know, a similar process. And obviously you had developed a system that worked really well at, at several places you've been. And since then, you've seen people take the air raid philosophy and some of some of the plays and take them other places. And who do you see now kind of um, taking air raid philosophy to the next level or, or maybe even more specifically, what is Matt doing at Nevada that you're really impressed with that you feel like is, you know, is taking taking air raid to the next level? Um, I love what Matt's done with the pistol. And we did some pistol at McMurray uh, when I was there because our running back liked it. But of course, at Nevada, Chris Alt is is kind of the coach of Murtis out there, and he's he's around all the time. So Matt's been able to pick his brain, and and the run plays, the run part of the game, is really good. Uh, the other guy that changed the game, I think, in terms of air raid is, is Dana Holgerson in Houston, and Dana added the uh, what everybody right now knows as RPOs. Dana started doing that at Houston when he was with uh, Kevin Sumlin there and they had uh, case Keenan and they would, they would run the inside zone and then, and then throw a screen off of it or they would run the draw play and then throw a stick off of it. So he really was the, those two guys have really uh, improved the run game for the air raid. Uh, you know, if you watch, of course, like coach leeches, you watch Mississippi state play and, and it's uh, it's it's pretty much the same version we were running in 1994 in Valdosta State. Uh, there, there's a bunch of guys out there doing it. Uh, obviously, Lincoln Riley and Sonny Dykes, and Neil Brown. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's just a lot of people doing versions of it. 
y'all mentioned, one of y'all mentioned early in the show that it was more of a philosophy, and that's true. The air raid's always been more of a philosophy than it was a playbook. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we never even had a playbook. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think the idea of taking a few plays that you can challenge somebody for the entire width and length of the field with and do it at a real rapid pace and and uh, try to get the line in, in splits that that are to their advantage, not only the, the, the split width-wise, but also the split vertically uh, off the ball. And, and a lot of people miss that uh, when they first start studying this offense. But I think th- those things right there, I look around, and there's just a lot of people that have taken it. Phil Longo's doing a great job with it in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people around that have studied and they're doing great jobs with it. Yeah. Well, Coach, hey, we, we we want to be respectful of your time, but I've uh, got one more for you. So, you know, sure. it's always interesting to hear, especially the college coaches we talked to, um, it's such a uh, – well, really at any level, it's it's coaching is such a demanding profession. And then you get to college level, and like you mentioned before, you, you're moving around quite a bit. You're a guy that's um, – you have a family, you've got um, kids. How, how, how have you been able to marry being a family guy um, and also being a, a high-level coach over the course of your career? Well, you know, I'm on, I'm on my second marriage, so I'm not sure that worked out that good. But my first <laughs> wife was a great mom to our children. They're all successful people, including that. They all have upper-level degrees. They're all doing what they love doing. So in that respect, our family was really a tight-knit unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife now, Jacqueline, is, is a great mom, and, and she she loves football and enjoys being around it. So I, I think you just got to treat people the way you want to be treated. And, and that's, that's pretty true of any profession. And what I would say to young guys out there that are thinking about you, you, I think you have to make a decision. I did this early in my career. I want to have a shot at playing on the highest stage, or I want to just make good, good money and, and not have to move around a lot. So if you want the latter, then you need to go the high school route and, and, right and be really satisfied with that and try to be the best you can be. High school coaches influence more people than anybody else. Mm-hmm. College, high school coaches in, in influence, if they stay, if they do it for a whole career, they're going to influence thousands of people. Right. College coaches are going to influence hundreds of people and pro coaches are going to influence dozens of people. And, and so you got to decide what you want, which, which of those niches is yours. And, and, uh, you know, I, I made the decision to, to do the former and and so it it there's some cost to it there's some big cost to it and you got you got to be a you got to be an adult and realize that's going to happen uh you're going to work for a lot less money you're going to have to pay your dues for a good while before you get any breaks and you're going to have to come up with something that everybody needs or you're not going to get it you you know you're not going to be able to get a job so it's uh it's it's a difficult decision to make you usually have to do it when you're in your mid twenties and, and uh, mid to late twenties, and so that's that's difficult too because sometimes 
family situations and stuff like that have to come into play. Um, so I, you know, I, that, that's, I don't know how good that advice is, but that's the best I can do there, guys. No, that's good stuff. Yeah.